Be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. I'm Dan Cottrell, editor of Rugby Coach Weekly, and with me I've got three guests, Dave Sharkey, Ed Conway and Jed Hall. And we're going to discuss Doug Lemos' new book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching. So before we start talking about the book, let's uh, introduce ourselves to the guests. So uh, introduce yourselves, please. Hi, my name's Dave Sharkey. Uh, I'm a teacher of 13 years. I'm an English teacher. Uh, I'm currently at Hampton School. I've just been there this, uh, this term so far. Uh, and I also coach rugby at the HAC. Hi, my name's Ed Conway. I am the rugby professional at Merchant Taylor's School in Northwood, and I also coach on the London Irish DPP. Hi, I'm Jed Hall. I am the Youth Development Manager at Sandbach Rugby Club, and I'm also the centre lead for Sale Sharks at uh, Chester Central. Welcome all three of you to the podcast. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the book. So let me introduce you to the author. Uh, Doug Lemoff, uh, who was on a, was a guest on our show last year, is the best-selling author of Teach Like a Champion. He heavily researches good practice in schools and then helps other teachers to follow this in their own teaching. Much of what he discusses can be used in a sporting context too. He's a keen soccer fan and his children play lots of sport. And by watching that and being involved in that, he has been very keen to talk about how the classroom and the sports field are linked in terms of learning and teaching. This book starts to delve into that. Well, I think it more than delves into it. This book, as he says, is for the class of teachers called coaches. In the end, it aims, the book aims to help get better results. Whether we feel that's in terms of cups, wins, or just better people, that's a personal matter. But if we can be all be more effective teachers and create better outcomes, who wouldn't be keen to know more? Inevitably, we can't summarise a book in this short space of time. So I've challenged the panel to pick up, pick out some of their thoughts for us to discuss. We're only going to look at the first three chapters of a six-chapter book. Dave Sharkey is going to kick off uh, with chapter one. So over to you, Sharkey. Thanks, Dan, and uh, thanks for having me on. Um, Doug Lamoff is is someone I've been aware of for the last few years as, as, as a teacher. Um, and recently, I suppose, I know, I'm very familiar with his book, Teach Like a Champion, Teach Like a Champion 2.0, which he came out with. Uh, as a teacher and a coach, uh, I think Practice Perfect was one of his uh, books a few years ago, which I really, really enjoyed. So when I heard about this book and him sort of applying pedagogy to um to coaching, I, I, I was I, I was only too delighted to uh, to get the the nod from you to to get involved. And um, so I was looking at chapter one, which looks at the the ideas perception. And, and as you mentioned, it, it's a fairly uh, dense chapter, and there's lots of content in here. Uh, and I think over the last few months, we, we've been um, we've a lot of information. So I've tried to kind of process this information three different ways. Uh, so I'm just trying to pick out the best bits. Uh, something new maybe or, or something that was presented in the way and then any questions that I had so just uh, three kind of areas that, that I'm going to look at so I'll start off with some of the best things I took from this chapter um, so with, with the idea of perception again what we're um, what we're perceiving again as uh, as coaches but also as players especially and, and as learners and um, there was a line that stood out to me this idea of experts seeing differently from novices so the more expert and the more adept you are at something, the more you're likely to see. And there's, there's a lot of examples here. He talks about uh, eye tracking with Ronaldo, where he's looking at the hip movements and the knee movements of a, of a, of a player, as opposed to a, a novice who's looking at the ball, uh, you know, the, the, the player, and then more of the ball. And he also looked at this idea of like an expert pianist uh, who was reading music and playing at the piano, and they were looking almost a few steps ahead. So if you're an expert, you're, you're, you're seeing things very, very different. Um, so it led me to this idea, of, and it's one of the best points, I think, of the chapter, this idea of experience leading to seeing more information to read and to respond to. Uh, and that's very, very important, I think, for people, again, that, that, that we're dealing in front of us as coaches and, again, as, as a teacher myself. So being aware of actually how much uh, knowledge someone has or experience someone has of this skill or this aspect. They may be, they may be a very, very comfortable, uh, 
comfortable and competent player, but actually at this skill, is this something that they're very, very uh, comfortable with? Are they an, an expert or are they a, a novice? Because they're going to see the world in a different way. Another thing that stood out to me was he drew this conclusion, uh, sorry, this uh, connection to uh, Daniel uh, Kahneman's uh, thinking fast and slow. So he looked at the idea of the difference between decision-making and problem-solving. Um, and again, the idea of decision-making being something that's happening very, very quick, uh, very, very uh, instinctive almost. Um, and problem-solving taking, it's a slower type of thinking. So I thought that was very, very interesting. He also explored the idea um, of most of what happens in the game, uh, that, that games that we watch, uh, you know, matches that we're watching are examples of decision-making, whereas most of what maybe we're doing in training is more about problem-solving, which brings us to the, the idea that actually, uh, can you solve problems in a game as quickly as we may expect? It's easy sometimes in the cheap seats uh, where you're watching it at home, but actually, are we actually just watching decision-making? How do we how do we make better decision makers was something that I was particularly interested in. Uh, so if training is more about problem solving and games are more about decision making, then how do we build up, a, I suppose, a bibliography of, of, of problem solving so we can execute and make better decisions in the game? Uh, so I thought that was particularly interesting. Uh, I also like the idea of him saying that there are three tools of use to build knowledge. Uh, curriculum, a set of principles of play, which would be a game model, uh, and also a list of shared terminology. Um, and, and again, the line that stood out to me about this was consistent vocabulary is necessary to consistent execution. So those are my three kind of best bits uh, from that chapter, uh, which, I, which I really, really enjoyed. Um, some things that were kind of new or, or, or I certainly kind of enjoyed were the lines from Johan Cruyff, uh, doing simple things at speed makes them seem complex. Uh, and then the idea that complexity is actually maybe just a bit of an illusion. Um, that actually you practice these things so much that it seems like it's intuitive, it seems heads up, it seems like you're reading it, but actually it's the it's as Wayne Smith described, you know, creativity is just practice that's camouflaged because you've done an awful lot of it. So that that was something that was quite interesting. Uh, to me. And I thought that was packaged in sort of new sort of way. Uh, another thing that was new to me was the perception of, of maybe not not what's just happening in front of you, but what's about to or could happen. So again, if we go back to this expertise, that experts and people who've got a lot of hours playing and performing maybe a certain skill or playing a certain game in a certain position, they can preempt maybe what's going to happen. Now, you can do this yourself as rugby coaches, where if you're watching the game with someone who's maybe less familiar and you pause it and you say, what's going to happen next? You have a far better indication sometimes maybe as to what that might be. Uh, now, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. I don't know. But your expertise allows you to maybe read that a little bit better. It's also true of teammates who read each other a little bit better. And um, it also reminded me of the fact that actually these things take an awful lot of time. And as a teacher, I was certainly guilty uh, of expecting too much too quickly from the players and as uh, sorry from, from students. And as a coach, I did the same. Uh, we, we did this once or twice, and we spent two or three lessons on it. And I expect that they have it. Um, I, I've taken a more cosmic sort of uh, view of time in the sense of the longevity and actually how long these things take. So. I see them for a season and I, I might only see some developments if I keep working at these things and keep going back over them. But actually I need to maybe look at their journey as players on a, on a far grander kind of scale in terms of years and you know, how long they'll be at the club or playing, playing the sport. Um, and the last thing I thought that was quite new that I thought was pretty, uh, pretty cool was um, that this was a, a coaching and a teaching book with examples of dialogue in training, things you might say. So, you know, this first chapter is littered, and I know some of the other chapters are littered with actual dialogue that you could use. So, you know, what phase are we in? Uh, what do we do when we're here with the ball? Uh, what might be an option here? And, and you know, Doug goes through examples of, of, of terminology and language again that you could use, and also maybe examples of maybe of how that could be better. Um, my last kind of uh, questions again that I have, and I'm happy to open these up to the uh, to the group, is that um, how can we acknowledge, support, and develop players who perceive well? So those who have good examples of perception, how do we recognise that? How do we plan for that? Maybe how do we how do we um, encourage that and develop it? For me, I think it's about having better better conversations about what they perceive. Um, you know, what are you seeing? Is a better way of maybe saying what decisions can you make can be quite useful 
another question I had about was the idea about scanning. And I know this is quite a popular sort of word, but for me, I'm conscious of the word scanning. I'm wondering whether it's the best way to describe what the players are doing, because scanning for what? In the same way of saying you need to look, uh, look for what? And I think maybe is there a better term maybe to use for that? Um, could we talk about maybe assessing for opportunities or deficiencies? Could we turn scan into an acronym, uh, which I've tried uh, <laughs> to put into an acronym so maybe it actually means something a bit more than just scanning? Because I, I hear people talk a lot about scanning, but I don't think they really pair, uh, go down to much detail in it. And then finally, and this is a big one, uh, Doug spends a lot of time talking about the rondo in football. And having coached a bit of football myself uh, over the last few years, uh, when I'm not dabbling in rugby, I um, I know the rondo within some uh, coaching spheres is not seen as actually all that useful. So I was interested to see again how much he sort of championed it. But irrespective of what, what we feel on that, the question I have is if if the rondo to, to, is to soccer this this useful, um, very important kind of drill or or activity the players will engage in. Well, my question is to the group: What's rugby's rondo? What's the what's the thing we should be doing? Uh, you know, week to week, uh, season to season, to really refine uh, our kind of skill. Well, just just to build on on your Rondo, Darkie, I think um, I don't I don't know if you've come across it, but Ben Ryan has has talked about his his Rondo with Fiji quite a lot, which is often kind of um, weighted attack, uh, trying to score as many tries as you can in a short space of time, and and keeping the ball active, and um, I, it's something that I I do actually use quite a lot. Um, I think it's it's quite beneficial. Whether it's similar to the football one, I'm not I'm, I'm not sure. But um, I, I just had a question as well. You've identified loads of of cool things there. It can sometimes be a tough a tough question. But what's what's the first the first thing that you think you'll you'll try to apply? You know, the next session that you're in, having having read the chapter, what do you think's the the one or or two things that you're you'll be kind of conscious or aware of or, or include in your planning or whatever it might be. I think it's something that I've been playing. I've been sort of playing around with and toying with before. And as an English teacher who coaches, I'm particularly interested in the use of language. Um, so a kind of common vocabulary or vernacular that that a team can use. Uh, I also I really don't like some of the the common terminology maybe that loses its meaning. Uh, now it could be jargon, and, and I say that cautiously because some language again i think we use in the game could be jargon but i think it's only jargon if we have a misunderstanding of what it is and it's very very commonplace or it's lost its meaning so it's okay to refresh that to say actually what do we mean by by x what do we mean by y uh, but i'm particularly interested in kind of defining maybe some key terminology uh, I, I am a big believer in, in kind of planning for language uh, in sessions and thinking about what will the questions that i'll ask what are the technical points i might use so I'm looking forward to try and develop that and refine that a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mention about um, scanning and what does it actually mean and building off what you just said, that it can actually mean so many different things because a seven scanning at the base of a scrum is looking for something completely different from a 15 scanning down the pitch after receiving a kick. So I think we need to be really clear about what we actually mean by some of these terms sometimes. So kind of feeding into that is maybe the thought that the principles of play that we have at the minute, so contest possession, go forward, support, continuity, do they actually mean a lot? Are they actually a good set of principles of play uh, that we can use and apply? Or does there maybe need to be a bit more meat on those bones? I think a little bit like like you've said there, that we need to define what scan means. And what does scan mean when we have the ball as opposed to when we don't have the ball? What does scan mean when we're kicking off? What does scan mean uh, in a certain passage of play when we're down by a certain, like what's the context? So I think off the same lines of that, principles of play are, are a good starting point. But I, I did like how uh, Doug kind of pushed beyond principles of play to a game model, to a game plan, so to speak. But again, largely principles, sort of about what do we do in this area when we have the ball and when we turn this over. So I did like that. So in terms of the principles of play, again, let's define what we mean by going forward. Like going forward to one team could be very, very different to another. So, um, you know, 
certain international teams that may or may not have been playing today uh, in the final of the uh, Autumn Nations Cup may have very different uh, philosophies or attitudes or game plans and maybe seeing the uh, principles of play in a different fashion. I think that's okay. I think that's one of the exciting things as to how actually we will we, we play this game. Uh, but I've no issue necessarily with the, with the principles of play themselves, but I think if we leave them as they are and assume everyone knows what they mean, then they could fall into that category of jargon where it's just things that people say things that we're meant to know, but we don't actually know what they mean. So as long as we can delve down deeper into define what those are and define what they mean to us, in my position, in my team, uh, with this group of people that are changing maybe from week to week, I, I, th- I think I'm, I'm happy enough with that. I'm, I'm interested in the, the decision-making versus problem-solving that you brought up. And uh, before the podcast started, we were actually talking about the famous time that England struggled to problem solve the Italian ruck defence and uh, England got a lot of criticism at the time for it and I wonder whether they were they were right to be criticised in you you talked about problem solving and decision making in training what what would you do differently or what's that going to look like so you can help the players make better decisions on the pitch or maybe they need to be thinking more about problem solving on the pitch what, what's your understanding of how that works so uh... I really like that idea of actually separating decision-making and problem-solving. They're, they're terms we hear a lot, but I like the idea of how, and again, it's not to say that there is no problem-solving in the game, but that most of the game is happening so quickly that decisions are being made without necessarily a lot of thought. And what you're seeing is the, the, the residue of who's problem-solved most and most widely. So, in the situation of England, uh, Italy a few years ago with the, um, the kind of uh, the, the variations around the rook law is that England faced a, a problem they hadn't seen. So in training, I would hope that maybe we can give them as wide a diet or a curriculum as possible to see lots of different situations and scenarios. And again, scenario training can be quite useful for this. So we're, we're in this situation in the game. So bit like when I'm teaching students is that what I want when they go into an exam is that I'm hoping they're seeing a question they can either they've seen sort of before so we often look at a question go geez I really don't like that look at that question for this uh, for this Macbeth or King Lear essay then I stop and go okay how can we turn this into a question maybe we have seen before how can we break this down and refine it so in the same way in, 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 in rugby or in coaching that hopefully again we can do enough what problem solving where we can talk through it refine it practice it where eventually when we get to a game we don't have to make too many real broad jumps or leaps to sort of solve the problem we can make those a little bit clear because we haven't seen this exact problem but we've done something very very similar to it uh, it's, it's hopefully again how I'd, I'd start to use that so in a in a training session you, when you set up a scenario would it be a problem for them to solve or would it be here a load of decisions to solve this problem if that makes sense i think you should you should probably pose the problem first and see what happens uh, see what they come up with because uh, as much as you are more perhaps again potentially more of an expert although not necessarily <laughs> um posing the problem for them they could come up with some novel solutions because you could say, well, in this situation, this is the best way to solve this problem, which it may be, but the people in front of you may not know the game the way you do, or may not be able to execute it the way that you're expecting. So if you go in with, a, 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 I suppose, a, a set of predetermined uh, decisions that this is the answer to the question, then you may as well just tell them that and they go, right, when you're here, do this. But I'm not sure that actually helps when they're faced with a situation that is changing or evolving. So the England team struggled in that game to to adapt. And I, 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 think, that's, I think it's really, really hard to adapt in games. And I think I've been certainly guilty of that from the side and saying, can't they see what I'm seeing? Well, no, obviously not. Uh, you know, they're running around, they're running into people, they've lots of things going on. Uh, so they're not seeing the way that the game up the way I'm seeing. So in some cases, and I think... Doug uh, referenced this in the book by saying if there's certain things that actually are too big, if the problems you're seeing in the game are too big to solve, then there's probably no point even re- referencing them in some cases because uh, you need to maybe leave that to training. It's too big a job. 
So when you've got the two minutes before half time, and I'm certain I'm certainly have been guilty of this in the past. I'm trying to get better at this. Is that I would overload them with lots of stuff that I saw, irrespective of how relevant it was to them. And I'm saying, oh, we haven't done this, we haven't done that, and it tended to reference the last five ten minutes I just watched, irrespective of how important the first thirty five minutes were of the game. Um, so I think maybe if we're able to like what's most useful how can we help them solve the problem immediately or how can we help them make better decisions um, because when it comes to the game time maybe it's a bit too late I think this is going to lead us quite neatly into uh, chapter two uh, so I'm going to move over to Jed and Jed tell us a bit about what you discovered in chapter two of the book yeah, um, what Dave's just spoken about feeds perfectly into this, which was a chapter on session design. Um, so what Doug really looked at here is how people learn first and foremost. So what we need to think about is skills and tactical decisions are a form of knowledge. So we have to create sessions that allow people to take in this knowledge and uh, be able to recall it in an effective manner. Um what we've got to think about is that knowledge begins in working memory. So that's what we're implicitly thinking about. And a big point that he makes throughout throughout this chapter is really focusing on one thing at a time. It's not throwing the kitchen sink at everything and saying, here are five things I want you to remember. You know, it might not be, you know, I want you to run into this space, throw this pass and then make a step. We really want to break it down. We might say, okay, today all we're doing is looking at running into this space. So really bringing it down to, one targeted goal per session, which I think is something that again ties back into this idea of do we actually know what we're looking for in terms of language? So it's being very explicit within our session design. Um, for me, as a non-teacher, the stuff on uh, working memory and long-term memory is huge. Um, you know, so people actually have to learn something and then forget it to have it committed to memory so that they can recall it. Um, again, I don't know if it's particularly something that's covered a lot in teacher training and people are just laughing at me now because as a layman, that blows my mind. But um, it's something that really comes across time and again. And we've got to think about how our sessions affect that working memory. Um, so are we doing stuff which is overloading players within a session, which can really affect the way that they're learning? Um, so a great example of this is... If we take a novice and put them in a game, are they going to learn the same way that an expert might? And the answer is probably not. So what we really need to do is think about what our players need and focus on that. So in a way, we're almost talking about very player-centered uh, session design in a way, but it's not giving players what they want per se. It's creating these environments where people can learn. So the big thing as well is working on multiple sessions and i think dave mentioned it before you know that maybe does something in a session and they do it really well and you think they've learned it and then come game day it happens and what they do is completely the opposite of what they did in training so that's a great example of people performing well in training but the learning not going in so that might be because they've not recalled it enough or maybe they've not, you know, seen that cue in a session before. So it's really thinking about how those cues work and how can we start creating sessions now that really build up to be able to create this knowledge. Um, so there's a lot of almost balancing that we have to create challenges that can um, stretch people without demanding too much of them. Because like using the example before of putting a novice into an expert game, there's going to be so much going on that their working memory on that thing that they're trying to learn perhaps doesn't uh, click in. They're overwhelmed. They don't learn. Whereas if we put an expert into a novice game, they aren't particularly going to learn anything because they don't need to because it's not challenging enough for them. So really, session design is becoming this long form kind of thing rather than a one shot training session. And there's a great quote in there that says, you know, even the best training session in the world of as a one-off will not really make a difference to a player. It's got to be a long committed um, process. I think for me, that is a big, big thing. Again, in terms of coming in as a non-teacher, not really working in education, that thinking of creating these chains almost 
between our sessions and creating these links that will, you know, allow players to recall bits from other sessions is huge. And again, it's maybe something we don't see on a Sunday morning that we'll see coaches go out and create these sessions and it's one hit. The next week, kids come down and nothing really gets um, picked up. So we've got to think about what is our role there? What is our purpose? And if it is long-term development, do we need to now start thinking about session design, which perhaps caters more towards this long-term development rather than just one-off, this is what I think we should do this week. Okay, that looks great. We don't need to cover that again. Even if it does look great, we need to come back at a later time because we have this um, forgetting curve, as we keep calling it, um, where players forget 50% of new material after they've um, learnt it after one hour. And that steadily goes down, 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 down. After a second um, exposure to it, that um, memory stays a bit longer. So we need multiple exposures to something to actually make it stick. Um, so that was really good. Um, I think another thing was really thinking about isolating um, skill. So if we really want to commit something to memory, we want to um, really isolate it first. So say we're talking about the ability to pass off our left hand, we wouldn't go into a game and just try and pass off our left hand in a game because, again, there's too much going on. There's so many different variables that are affecting our working memory and our ability to really focus on that pass maybe isn't there. So what we need to start doing is maybe slowing down a bit and using blocks to practice. So we start, you know, just passing off our left hand for 10 minutes. And that should hopefully, if the challenge level is right, really work with players. Then we go into a serial. So what we might do is we might catch a high pass, um, kick and pass to our left. So they start chaining skills together. And then if we start showing that we can do this, we then move into a more random game type scenario. But again, it may not be a full game straight away. It might be a very conditioned game, such as an attacking overload, which allows us to really work on these passing skills. And it's steadily building. It's almost going up the pyramid until we get to the point where we are actually mastering the skill. And I think... If we think a lot about um, contemporary coaching literature, I think we're trying to jump to the top of the pyramid too soon without actually getting these um, basics in. And when you think about it from the educational um, standpoint, it makes a lot of sense that we do actually need to start building up to this. And it might be a long-term process that, you know, we don't become masters of long pass for five years. Well, that's fine. We keep doing little bits in between and we keep breaking it up. And we take this long-term development approach. So, yeah, the big thing for me is just really thinking about this long-term chain than rather than just one session itself. And another great point they make is what works for one group won't work for another group, just um, copy and paste in straight across. If you have experts, then they will learn differently to novices. So experts might learn more from mistakes, whereas novices might get more discouraged. So we really need to think about what our players' um, experience level is and how we can create the optimal learning conditions for them. And another great thing is um, really thinking as well that an expert can be a novice in something else. If I took somebody a wing position and then put him onto the flank, he would be a novice flanker. So what do I need to do with him to actually develop him as a flanker? Um, so that's another thing that we've got to think about is just because we think players are experts doesn't mean that they are. And we really need to know what we're aiming at for within our sessions. Um, I love the idea of um, you talking about, again, the skills as being knowledge uh, that, that the players are trying to acquire. So it led me to this idea and it connected to a little bit about the idea that uh, he suggests in the first chapter about a kind of curriculum. So would it be useful as coaches for us to reflect on what would a rugby curriculum be in a school, in a club from age eight through to 35, 40, whatever? Uh, what would a rugby curriculum entail, um, do you think? That's a very, very big question. I appreciate No, it's something that I really thought about after reading this. Um, if you think about it, we do actually sort of have a curriculum ready baked into our age group rules where we know we're 
age six. All they've got to worry about is being able to run into space and that kind of thing. I don't think there's even knock-ons. They just have to, you know, catch and run into space. So from a curriculum standpoint, we know, right, okay, straight away, we focus on that. The next age group up maybe has something else that we build upon. So this time they can't knock on because that's turnover. So we keep working on our passing, but this time it has to go to hand and that kind of thing. It's like you say, I think if clubs really want to become long-term development hotbeds, they need to think more about this kind of curriculum and this building and how do the rules of play actually work with that. So how do we start developing and really chunking up and saying, right, we think you should look at this for, you know, two months or a month. And I think he says within um, the chapter itself, you know, if we're going to look at something, we maybe look at it for four weeks as a bare minimum. Mm. Now, I don't know how that particularly works well with players that are working one session a week. And that was probably my big criticism of this chapter, that it talks a lot about people who were training four or five times yeah. a week. Yeah, I uh, saw that. Yeah. So these forgetting curves are great. But if a player comes back to something a week later, is that forgetting curve still there? And can we really get that same long-term development within players? It was something that I was particularly aware of, the idea of a curriculum. And, and you're right, there are certain elements of how we scale up aspects of contact, of line-out, testing at underage level. But for me, that idea of when to do certain skills or when to focus on certain areas or, or, or how you scale up catch and pass from under eight through to you know, uh, senior level was particularly interesting because if I was teaching a, a group of students in, in year seven and I was teaching a group of students in year 13, I wouldn't apply the same certain method. There are certain things that are similar between those two groups, but I'm not going to start looking at critical theory uh, and critical interpretation with year seven necessarily to the same extent I would do at year 13. So it just made me think about maybe when we do these things as well, uh, not just what we yeah, and I think that's another big thing as well, that maybe it is you know best left to uh, age group coaches because they know their players best. You could have a really intelligent group that can pick up a ball and see space straight away. So really working on them on scanning early could be a great thing for them to do. Whereas you might have an age group that kind of struggles and really needs to work on that basic. Um, so let them work on that base base skill um because the problem is as well then with our curriculum is that maybe we start pushing people a bit too far mm. and we create um environments that maybe aren't as welcoming so you know it does become a bit more pressured and it does become you know that um because it's being measured people start acting strangely i, I compare it to people looking at the international game and expecting grassroots to look like it or taking things from the professional game i spent a lot of my uh, my time coaching and I have to stop myself sometimes when I see something on TV and go, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to try that without really thinking, hang on, you know, I'm not coaching prof- <laughs> as, as wonderful as the HAC is and it is the greatest club in the world. Uh, they're not professional players. They're not the same athletes that I'm watching on television. So sometimes it, it, it does frustrate me sometimes when we look maybe at the international game and go, cool, I'm going to borrow that and put that in. I just don't think it's it's really applicable. So knowing when to do that and actually what's most appropriate, I think is lies in the hands of the coaches, certainly to reflect. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, that really we can have these great curriculums, but it still comes down to the coaches. Mm-hmm. So maybe is what clubs could do for more for coaches and schools could do more for their coaches is actually get this education in. Mm-hmm. Do you think we should coach less, but coach it better? So uh, we're trying to fit too much into um, the amount of time we have with our players. Yeah, and I think that ties in with what Dave says, that, you know, we see something and we think we should be able to replicate it. But then if you read what Doug says, it's almost, okay, let's do the best with what we've got. And I think there's a quote from uh, Wayne Smith in there that, you know, what the all-backs do is actually just the basics really well. And, you know, it was a huge thing a couple of years ago in rugby to keep parroting that. So do we just focus on doing the basics well and making sure that we actually get that rather than trying to overload players and create them into world-class players? Or do we let them just develop naturally? Yeah, and I think when we say 
do the basics well. It doesn't mean that it just becomes one long blocked practice. It's uh, you your your training sessions are rich in variety and challenge, yet you're not trying to overload them. I mean, one of the things that's talked about a lot is cognitive load theory, where you cannot remember everything from it. I mean, this podcast is going to be that. If you ask someone at the end of it, I know you're all very engaging in the way you speak, what can you remember? They won't remember every single point. They'll maybe remember one or two. So I'm just wondering myself um, whether I try and fit in too much into a training session and into maybe, as you said, maybe six weeks or an eight-week block of training what have we got to cover? And maybe I need to strip out three or four things. Yeah, Jed, you, you mentioned it a few times, actually, about um, the ideas around kind of novices versus experts, that there was something um, that Doug Lemov said that I wrote down, where, similar to kind of actually what Sharky was talking about, about experts and experts and novices see differently. They literally are looking at different things. You talked about it as well in terms of working memory and communication. Um, I think... And I loved actually the, the way you, you you kind of identified the way that that novice expert thing is actually quite murky. Like you, I think you said, you know, you could be, you know, a bit of an expert on the wing, but, um, you know, a novice in a different position. And in a game like rugby, I think that becomes quite interesting. Uh, I guess the, the question is, how how do you think, you know, in sessions and when you meet groups, how do you identify, um, you know, maybe where players are along that continuum? And then also kind of how you try to to bridge that gap where you've got so many people at, at different stages to to try and get the individual learning and, and stuff all sorted as well as um, kind of a group flow to the session. Yeah, it's a great question. And again, it comes back to the great problem that we all have, that we only have finite time, especially with, you know, club uh, groups and schools that we only have that short amount of time. And I know from personal experience, a lot of sessions at that kind of level become almost at the um, medium point, which perhaps isn't great if we're reading through this chapter that maybe there are players there that are being stretched by them and that aren't being stretched by them. So like you say, going out and finding these individual challenges is really important. Um, How you do it is difficult to say because we can, you know, look at what he says in this chapter itself um where he talks about how we can almost confuse performance and learning so we could actually watch something within a training session and see them perform really well and think okay they're at this level um then they go out and they perform on a game day and they can perform completely differently so maybe it's a case of really talking to players and taking a long-term approach maybe we can't come in on one session watch them and really um, find out what they need. It maybe needs to be a longer-term development. So, again, it's really getting to know players. What are they looking for? Are they actually looking to be stretched, or are they just coming down because they want to come down with their friends and enjoy themselves? And it's a lot of conversations which maybe we aren't great at, and maybe we don't have the time for because of, you know, the unfortunate constraints of the game and the reality that we work in. Um, so it's a real difficult one. Can I just pick up on that point and just open it up to uh, everybody? How can we tell that learning's taken place? And I know before we you enter into it, you can't tell if learning's taken place by just asking a few good questions at the end of the session. In In your experience, when can you say, if you can say, I think they've learned that? I think as a as a teacher, this is something that I've really struggled with and grappled with. And I, I referenced it earlier where we would have covered something even for a, a, a certain period of time, which I think is enough. And I'm saying, oh, they maybe have it in the short term, but again, it's not been committed to long-term memory. So if learning, if we define learning as a change in long-term memory, stop looking for learning immediately after you've delivered something. You need to see that sustained over a period of time, again, with the idea of, Learning requires forgetting and therefore needs a bit of gap before you've introduced it. You need to return to it at certain stages. And you really won't know until it's learned, until you see it executed under pressure. Uh, and that might be not necessarily 
uh, a few minutes after you've introduced it. It's more likely to be weeks, months, possibly even years. Uh, and that's why I, I like the idea of cosmic time. Uh, I found it today that a cosmic second is 440 years, uh, just to give us a respect of, of, of the concept of time. So us and, and my sort of two or three minutes of a session where we're maybe uh, working on uh, catch pass and, and getting frustrated that they haven't covered it, uh, really is a very very small drop so i need to i need to give it time it was interesting uh, dave hadfield is uh referenced in the book um he talks about chasing rabbits if you chase five rabbits you'll never catch uh, any of them you chase one you better chance but he also said that um, he observed the all blacks learning and at the start of the week they would introduce um, a new lineout move and it may not go right at the start of the week. The next training session, and anyone who's been in pro rugby will know that you don't train every single day. Um, you spread it out. By Friday, they probably would nail the move. And now he worked, tried to work out why that was. And he said, it's between Monday and the Friday. They've been thinking about it in the weirdest of times. They could have been walking down the corridor. They could be in the shower. They could have been over lunch. So they've had that chance to process it. And then, then come back to it. So I think that comes to the, the forgetting curve. Um, so in terms of performance and execution, Ed, how do you perceive learning to have happened? Really tough and probably probably more often than I'd like to admit, admit uh, inaccurately. You know, you, you kind of, you, you see these things and, and you think, oh, that's exactly what we did on Wednesday. Aren't I amazing? Um, and then the next week they're faced with the same situation and it's it doesn't happen. I think... Um, I think one way to, to to really spot learning is um, when faced with with similar but different challenges. How do they react, and and are they able to apply maybe things that we've discussed? So are they able to take um, something that is linked but potentially different and uh, and apply it to a different challenge or context? Um, I think it's it's probably you know we've mentioned time you know the coaches lack lack time often I think sometimes you you lack the time to be able to to record and, and notice that as well as you'd like but I think that's that's probably a starting point for me in terms of how I would how I'd try and look at learning. Well, it neatly moves us into the next chapter, which is what you're going to talk about, Ed, uh, because some of that um, what I mentioned is sometimes we check for learning through feedback and questions so um i'm gonna get you ed to talk a little bit about what you discovered yeah i think um actually dan you about five or ten minutes ago you you, you said a very quick sentence that i think completely sums up how how i saw this uh chapter which was perhaps as coaches we need we need to do less but do it better um and so i'm uh, rather than kind of go through too many of the details similar to the other guys i, I i've no, put down some notes around um, perhaps the things that I've taken from it that will underpin um, some of the points that are outlined in the book. Um, so I think first of all, and it's it's something that I probably, again, embarrassingly think think too often, but um, I think better planning is really important. So the, the chapter talks about um, feedback and questioning, and I think. Um, for me, in terms of how I might apply some of the ideas, clear, I think better planning um, for around my communication and, and questioning will be, will be really useful for me. So, you know, often we'll um, I think a lot about session design and what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? Um, I know a lot of stuff that Ed Hall has said, um, you know, around planned interactions as well. So I, I try to do to do those sorts of things. Um, but the communication side of it in terms of making really clear, efficient points um, with focused language is something that I think for me in, in the short term, I just need to, to plan better and have these notes ready to refer to during a session because sometimes you can just get, you know, you get carried away and you see something different um, and you start talking about that. So that efficiency and, and quality of language, I think, will be um, really important for me. I also think, um, as I said, kind of having those notes in session will help. So just holding a, a clipboard or something, which I never normally do because I feel like, oh, I've always got something in my hands. But actually, I think it will it would certainly make me a lot more focused. Um, you know, if I've identified something we need to work on, it's important that I don't get distracted by other things I see. 
Um, and he also talks about making notes on the fly as well. So recording what you're seeing so that your next intervention addresses what you are seeing. And then, you know, every time you look back down at your sheet, right, I need to follow up on what, what we have just talked about um, rather than talking about something and then moving on to something else altogether. Um, he talks, he calls that um, aligning your feedback. So having a stoppage or an intervention, talking about something or, or getting a point across, um, but then actively looking for, you know, are they making the desired change um, and making sure that you feedback on that. Um, and I think that was, that was a really useful um, part for me. The second thing actually, something I think teachers do really, really well. Um, I'm in a school environment now, so I, I see it quite often. Um, I'm not actually a qualified teacher. And I think sometimes in the past, there are things that I've deliberately overlooked. So he, he mentions about, you know, having um, routinized procedures that you talk through at the start of the session, kind of establishing some boundaries for communication. So whether that's putting hands up or um, being very clear around when I say freeze or pause, this is what it means and this is what I want you to do. So to make sure that they understand that, because certainly I was reading that and I was just having flashbacks to, to loads of sessions where I've said freeze and half of them are still moving. And I'm like, right, no, you kind of get back over there where, where were you stood and you just lose all momentum. Um, you're losing all those opportunities to, to have a really effective uh, learning experience. So I think uh, that's really important for me. Set out some, some clear routines that start around, you know, when I say something, what does that mean? And what, what action is required from you? Um, he also mentioned, there was a phrase I loved that he said, talks about kind of avoiding feedback that is true, but useless. Um, and I think as coaches, we do that so often where we, we either commentate or we spot something and it, it absolutely happened. And it's definitely something that needs to be worked on. But in that moment, the way we've communicated it or the timing means it's essentially useless. So um, a phrase he used was looking for causes rather than symptoms. And this, again, made, made me flashback the amount of times where I've spoken to a winger, um, you know, you're often stood on a touchline near a winger, so they, they get a lot of comments sometimes and, and saying, no, don't bite in, don't bite in. And he talks about avoiding, you know, avoiding that kind of don't do this, instead identifying what they should be doing and providing um, real detail around the actions rather than the desired outcome. So um, specific language that, that they can tap into. Um, I know that Pete, Early in the book, he talks about how Pete Carroll and his Seahawks coaches, um, they always talk about what's the next thing to do right. So instead of always looking back and you did that wrong or don't do this, actually, what's the next thing that we've got to get right? Um, and then also just following up that the same language he, he mentioned, encoding your language in training and using the same language in competition so that if you're using the same kind of sticky phrases in training, you can use those quick phrases in competition that will actually mean something to the players rather than finding another way of saying it because you're in the moment and you're, you're wrapped up in the competition and it, it doesn't mean anything and they, they just kind of acknowledge you and move on and, and make the same mistake again. Um, the, the final point for me actually was um, reading through that there's, there's so many different, different points here around um, improving your communication and uh, improving your questioning and some just some really, really great points. And I think a, a challenge for me that I was like, well, I'll tell you what, what environment do I do some of these quite well? And I think often it's in, in smaller group or one-to-one -one trainings or, or breakouts where you can give immediate quick feedback. They have the opportunity to immediately try out what you're talking about because there's less distraction and there's less noise. So I think the challenge for me is, is trying to apply these principles, hopefully through through better planning and some routine, routine uh procedures is to apply those skills also within a squad environment where it's a little bit more active and there's a game going on and I guess just trying to improve those those learning moments for the players I think and they're the key things that I'm I'm going to try and, and do a bit better going forward. Yeah I think something that was really interesting to me was when uh, Doug talked about um, Dan McFarlane at Ulster Rugby and he talked about um, feedback loops so in the example, um, he gave one of the coaches picked up on a player not making it to a ruck quick enough. So he used a very specific phrase. And then the next time that he saw him do it, he um, acknowledged it. So he called that a feedback loop. And I'm wondering how often do we actually create these feedback loops within our sessions ourselves? 
And how do we work as a team of coaches to actually get these in and actually make sure that our feedback isn't overlapping? Yeah, I, th- I think it's so important because so so especially when you're in, in coaching teams and uh, co-coaching, I think, again, or in my interpretation or for me that I think would be useful would come back to a better planning process. Uh, certainly when you're when you're in a coaching team, understanding what you're looking at, what roles you're doing, maybe what you're questioning or when you when you're feeding in, um, perhaps having someone. Um, that you, you know, as co-coaches, you report to who oversees the communication process so that, you know, we don't all bring all the players in and then all four of us feel like we want to say something, perhaps trying to identify um, some overlap a little bit quicker um, and being really uh, specific about that. I think what you mentioned as well ties in with with some of the things I said. So that idea of encoded language, um, you know, short, sticky phrases that that are meaningful to the players, that aligned feedback. But if we're going to stop, if we're going to stop them and we're going to talk about something or we're going to do a breakout, as a coach, I need to then look specifically for how they are doing at that. So, um, you know, if if I'm coaching Sharky. Um, I need to notice how well Sharky did what we just talked about rather than any other mistake or something amazing, of course, Sharky, that he might have done. Be really specific around, yeah, being, being specific and, and disciplined around, well, no, if we talked about that, I need to look at how Sharky is doing what we talked about so that I can give him that quick feedback. Um, in, in the chapter, something that he talks about really well is that being able to do that as well creates a kind of a culture of uh, accountability where the players know that well, a you're disciplined and you're looking for it as the coach but the players know that you're looking for it um so then there's there's an accountability to be more f- focused around breakouts and stoppages and, and listening and then as a player trying to apply it because you know the coach is looking out for it and and stuff like that that i i think i just haven't thought about in 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 enough detail and and done well enough but it's it's it seems simple and it seems obvious but it's yeah something that i'm i'd certainly going to take forward yeah it's definitely something that i've thought about as well that you know you bring in a load of coaches on a sunday morning or midweek and you don't really lay out what you're thinking or what you're looking for within a session and then suddenly you have so many different um levels of feedback going into players how on earth can they actually make sense of it? So maybe we actually need to pre-plan our feedback. And I know that's something that I've seen before where people talk about really thinking about what do we think we're going to see in this session. Yeah, and and understanding, I think, whatever, you know, like you said, what, what everyone is is looking for and, and how we might communicate that. Similar to what you said, when you have loads of coaches, you sometimes, you know, one of you just can't resist, right, stop there, I need to feedback on this. Whereas someone else 10 metres away, another coach is thinking, well, actually, I was letting that run because I was looking for, I wanted to see something else. I thought they were about to do something else that we've talked about. And um, it, it's such a skill, I think, co-coaching, that it's um, it can be quite challenging. But uh, yeah, I think, I think you make a really good point. Um. Ed, I was interested in some of the, the the aspects you said about planning because it's it's definitely something I'm grappling with, um, especially trying to plan for language. But also, you mentioned Ed Hall and interaction. So I'm just wondering what kind of interactions have you planned for? And again, I I know that might be kind of open and broad. It might might pertain to specific uh, sessions and individuals. But do you have any examples of some of the interactions you maybe are considering? Yeah, I know. I know um... Often, and I, I'm not sure if this is, is good enough or in the way that Ed Hall has talked about it, but some simple things that, that, that we've done have talked around, um, you know, perhaps giving people certain roles for a session. So um, I know Irish a few weeks ago, we, we had a couple of boys that we just said, and it was quite a loose thing, but we said, you know, we just want you to be the energy today. Interpret that how you want, but that's what we're looking for from you. Um, I think sometimes for me as well, that also includes then... Uh, individual individualized kind of challenge and learning so perhaps saying to a player at the start right I'd really like you to work on this um and can you try and do this or or look at this as many you know as best you can during this session uh I think again something that can be better done is is then following up on that because as a coach you're, you're seeing so much and so that discipline I think for me would be really important um yeah I think in in the past it's often been around um interactions and in terms of perhaps roles or things we want to see from them. I, I actually think that what I've taken from this book is that that then also needs to include 
um, just some some key questions or key phrasing of questions or or even a little bit of detail around you know a couple of players that I'm I want to notice certain things about um, certainly something I'm I'm looking to explore. I, I, I don't know how have you have you done anything similar to that? Do you have any ideas kind of around that as well? That stuff that you've done that's worked or things that you're thinking about that you'd like to try out? I think I'm I'm trying to. Uh, well, what do we mean by an interaction? Is is it all just about rugby? Is it actually? Do you want to? Is, is this someone you need to get to know better? Is there someone you need to spend a bit more time, maybe uh, understanding how they see the game? Uh, it's maybe just thinking more about the people that are in front of you. Now, for me, um, and this links to again something yourself and Jeb were saying that actually when I'm planning for language, it, it will link to my feedback because I'm thinking maybe of the certain individuals that might pertain to. So when I'm in a session um, and we've been doing something, and actually one thing I've really enjoyed over the last couple of months is actually being stripped away of, of, of games to actually really look at technique in a way that I haven't really looked at for a long, long time. Um, so breaking that down into three key phrases like passing, I think actually, Ed, you might've been down at one of our sessions where <laughs> spent a lot of time passing from the base uh, I stopped calling it scrum half passing because it, invariably when we call it scrum half passing uh, everyone waited for the scrum half to do it and we were trying to get away from that so you know we talked about some of the key features of what that might look like so I would try and see that in games uh, and then I would maybe see someone do that and then try and support them with that so those are the kind of interactions maybe I was looking for uh, to interact to give them feedback on something I've planned for in advance uh, but I think it could be anything. I think those interactions could be anything where you're literally going, this guy's new to the club. I want to like find out a little bit more about him. So three stages, I'm going to catch him doing something really, really good. And I'm going to give a bit more uh, FaceTime on, uh, on, on feedback. But uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's what I understand interactions to be. Or what they could be. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think that's such a good point. Um, you're absolutely right that it, it doesn't have to be and shouldn't just be around uh, rugby specific things. So um, I know that in, in, in the chapter, for example, he, he talks about how any, any feedback is, is part of a, a broader kind of culture and relationship of, of trust between, between coach and player. So um, however you give your feedback and as good as it might be, that's always going to be couched in, in what your relationship is with that player and how they view you as a coach and as a person and stuff like that. And yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right that, sometimes it's really important to to plan around you know uh, you know I'm in a school environment you know remembering well that boy said he had uh he said on Monday that as soon as he was leaving the session he had a, a driving lesson or a driving test I I want to check up on that and, and ask how it was and those sort of things I think start to build um better quality relationships so, so I think you're absolutely right with that I liked how you mentioned about routines as well and as a teacher uh, my students will definitely tell me some of my verbal tics but some of the things that I will say uh, that apply to them that they will understand when I say body language I want them to sit up in their chairs shoulders back and I always say pull their chairs in close to the desk because as uh, as wonderfully engaging as I uh, as I sometimes think I am and as my mother will often tell me uh, my lessons can be pretty damn boring uh, when they just had lunch <laughs> so uh, finding those routines, I think, could be really, really useful for coaches. So when we say this, or when I blow the whistle twice, this is what I want to happen. And again, remembering that will take time to embed those. When you have those routines, you can establish how feedback, how stuff is delivered, how sessions run a lot smoother uh, if you can manage those. Uh, something I was going to jump in on there on in terms of routines. Um, do you sometimes feel that you have to go in hard to start off with to develop those routines and then ease off um, because sometimes coaches have the perception that they need to be the player's friends first and foremost to create a more inclusive environment where does that balance lie I think it's really tough because I was reading it and I, I had to really um, question myself in terms of what you know when I was younger did I avoid these routines because it you know it didn't seem cool and I wasn't getting them into the action quick enough and they just want to be playing touch so let's just get them into the game quickly and then then I can do stuff and you know as, as I get older and a bit more experienced you start to think oh god have I, have I really done done them a disservice for just for the the efficiency of the feedback that we could have had during sessions and uh, the time that might not have been wasted and the learning that perhaps was missed out on um, 
I mean, my opinion would certainly be that, yeah, I think it, it adds a lot of value and it's something that, that, that I need to do better. And again, as I said, and it's interesting hearing Sharky talk about it because it's something I think teachers do really, really well. So it must, you know, it must come from, um, you know, teacher training and that um, focus on learning within a classroom. Well, there's, you know, learning is learning. So we, we need to, I think as coaches, often we could we could do that a bit better. What, one routine, sorry, Ed, that just jumps out to me is a few years ago, I came across a, a video uh, cam on a, on a water uh, carrier in, in a Waratahs game. And actually, it picked up a lot of Michael Hooper's communication. And one thing which he did, which I really liked as a routine, I've used it a few times before, is that every time he came into a hut uh, with the players and he was the captain, he would say, if you're listening to me, if you're listening, take a step to me. So it was a physical action, a physical gesture, not just, hey, guys, let's listen up. And you might look or, you know, generally face towards them. It was literally a movement. Now, if you're not listening and everyone in the huddle is moving towards someone, you move too and you switch on. So I, I just liked it as a, as a sort of concept. And it just jumped into my head there when you talked about uh, routines. Yeah, that's that's getting written down. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> it's good. I've used it before. It's really it does switch on. Uh, it does uh, help groups to switch on and listen up. One of the things that I, I'm not sure if it's in this chapter was that, um, I mean, Doug uses examples from lots and lots of different coaches and uh, it's rich in terms of stories, is that he noticed that one coach, um, he was coming in to give some feedback and he started his watch to work out how long he was going to talk for and he stopped the watch at the end of it. So he was talking and he was uh, stopping and starting and stopping his watch and I thought that was really interesting because then he could reflect quickly backwards. Well, how much did I? How much time did I spend in that? And the other one was uh, he noticed that someone was using their phone every time they came in to give some feedback. Uh, they were actually recording what they were doing, so again that they could just quickly review afterwards to see how effective it was. Is that is that something that you would do or you'd feel uncomfortable doing, Jed? What do you think? Yeah, you just mentioned it because I think it must have been further on in the book or I've just forgotten it. Um, <laughs> forgetting curve. Forgetting curve again, yeah. Um, I think that makes perfect sense, especially if we feed back on something and we need to think, right, what have I actually just told them to do? Because if our feedback hasn't been clear, is that then a problem that we need to go back and address and really think about what we've told them? Because if they do go out and it's completely the opposite of what we've just spoken about in the feedback, is a problem with them or is it a problem with our feedback? And if we can really, you know, iron out and say, right, it is with us or it isn't with us, that's going to be really useful. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's it's one of those. Uh, it was in it was in chapter three, the the feedback chapter that he referenced that actually, and it's the it's the sort of thing that you know the first couple of times you video or, or record yourself it becomes uh, quite awkward viewing or listening after because you realize how often you're just aimlessly throwing out good or, you know, there, there's certain words and, and, and ticks that we, that we all use that are pretty pointless and, and don't add any value. So, um, you know, I'd, I'd strongly advocate coaches, you know, it's easy with, with phones now to, and, you know, to record and time and, and just kind of check on what we do. And as you said, it, it gives a key point for reflection afterwards that if you're, um, you're just able to focus on on something in a, in a specific way that gives you, I guess, objective objective data. It's, it's time, um, and it's you know you're hearing yourself back. And I think the the point that you've made earlier on, how much more you're going to plan your feedback, I think it's probably going to make the feedback more effective. And if you've actually then recorded it, you can you can check back. Sharky, would you would you find yourself recording yourself in class? It, it is the worst thing to hear yourself and see your gestures and you cringe inside yourself when it happens. Um, yeah, I, I, I've, I've, um, you need to push through that, unfortunately, and it is a bit uncomfortable at first, um, but it is so beneficial to do it. I, honestly, I haven't done enough of it, of it lately. Uh, I know uh, Reese Davies and I at HSC last year, he recorded... Uh, just some some audio uh, stuff that we had done, and uh, we need to do more of that. We need to, you know, get used to wearing GoPros and just reflecting on that a little bit more because that sort of stuff is invaluable. I know that's a big part of Doug's uh, work in teaching, where he recorded a lot of, I think, his his background for 
research for Teach Like a Champion came off the back of he went into schools and saw a hell of a lot of good teaching. I was like, no one's going to believe me. I'm not going to be able to describe this. So I need to show this to other people. So a lot of it comes down to actually learning from, you know, recordings and uh, clips of, uh, of people in action doing it in action. Well, I think that uh, what we've done in this is had a chance probably you'll listen back to your own thoughts on this and maybe cringe at what you've said in it. <laughs> but I, 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 I wouldn't because uh, we'd, uh, we've, we've covered an enormous number of points in a very short space of time and uh, there's been loads of value and I think um, I'm biased about the book. I, I've really, really enjoyed the book. I'm just going to quickly ask you to maybe pick out uh, one thing each that you would maybe recommend about the book. So, um, and we're not working on commission here. So, uh, Doug, if you're <laughs> listening in, just uh, just remember us. Um, so, I'll go to uh, I'll go to you, um, Ed, first. I think. Uh, I mean, I would. I think it is one of the better coaching books I've read, and I think one of the reasons for that is the the breadth of very practical um, kind of stories or examples that immediately highlight the kind of uh, the point that's being made within within that paragraph or, or that chapter that it, then it brings out whether through an interview or through an example coaches in different sports how they've applied it what it sounds like what it looks like um, and I think that for us as coaches makes it so much easier to digest. Yeah I think the best thing about this is even as somebody who hasn't you know got a neuropsychological degree or a teaching degree I can pick this up and access it really easily. I think the language is very easy to understand for anyone. And so actually applying it to your own coaching is very, very simple to do. Sharky? I, I, I find that there's there's an awful lot of content in this book and a lot of really, really good content. But a bit like a lot of the webinars and podcasts uh, that we've been digesting over the last number of months and maybe years, don't try and do everything at once. So I think it's good, actually, we have to whittle down our kind of our, our sort of key point. So for me, the big thing I'm going to take from this is I'm going to consider the expert novice scale uh, and whatever it is that we're doing at that time, I'm going to ask myself, where are they on this scale and how do I help them? So that's something I'm going to take. Yeah, I was, I'm thinking quite carefully how I would start with this and uh, with the first group of coaches that I work with, I think um, the first thing I'm going to work on is thinking about the forgetting curve and how that applies to them. Because I think, as Jed said earlier on, uh, if you're seeing a group once every week, that's completely different to seeing them every other day, maybe in a more professional circumstance and how that's going to work. But it is, there's so many stories and uh, I could pick out four or five straight off the top of my head, which I've actually remembered, which is quite good. Um, but first of all, um, thank you all three of you for your your very practical insights and you know very honest this is this is where i see myself in this and this is what i would do so thanks very much gents for your time on that thanks for having us yep cheers loved it loved it thanks dan um and the coach's guide to teaching is available from all good retailers and uh, it's coming out well we're we're actually very lucky we got to see um, a preview copy uh, but it will be out by the time this podcast's out. Uh, again, I reiterate my thanks to Dave and Jed for their thoughts and insights. Links and blurbs are available on the website or below the podcast. If you want to find out more, go to rugbycoachweekly.net, click on the podcast button. Uh, but thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we look forward to chatting to you all again very soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.